0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Well, so uh, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the topic uh, that we're going to be considering uh, this morning and for the foreseeable future throughout this whole Sunday school semester. Um, but if you're not, or if you haven't heard already, we're going to be talking about uh, American Presbyterian church history. And this is somewhat out of sync with what we've been doing up to this point. You've been uh, learning about ancient and medieval history, now we're skipping over the Reformation and going straight to American Presbyterian church history. Um, in part, that's why we have today's lesson, <laughs> which is to very, very quickly catch us up on some of the pertinent information that we need to know to understand Uh, The Foundations of Presbyterianism in Europe. Uh, But before we get into the topic at hand more properly, which is going to be the foundational study of Presbyterianism in Europe, uh, we do want to consider just very briefly why we might study a topic such as as this. Anyway, I mean, I I can see there would be some legitimate questions raised. For instance, we could be spending this time uh, considering a book of the Bible, Uh, considering a certain topic of theology or even considering a certain practical topic of Christian living. And all of those things, of course, would be worthwhile. Uh, So the question might pop into your head, why in the world would we spend time thinking about this somewhat esoteric subject? And I want to give just a brief apology for the class itself to try to help you understand why it's useful. Uh, The first thing I want to note... And I alluded to this in my prayer earlier. Uh, but it's simply the reality that I think we often don't consider, but we need to be more aware of, is that church history, whether it be American church history, whether it be Presbyterian church history, or whether it be medieval church history, or early church history, or whatever form it comes in, is really, if it's a history of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a history of God's kingdom at work in the world. We need to remember that. Redemptive history doesn't stop at the end of the book of Acts. And the Psalms, for instance, are full of calls for us to sing praises to God and to remember the good works that he has done in history. And some of these good works we're going to see together this semester. Another reason we might consider this topic is uh, church history is full of examples and examples we can find all throughout church history, both positive and negative. But maybe particularly for us as Presbyterians living in the United States, it's helpful for us to come a little closer to home and to see some of these positive and negative examples and and take just a moment of our time to consider what our forefathers and mothers in the faith did, uh, how faithful they were, how they erred, mistakes that they made, so that we can avoid their mistakes and so also we can be thankful for them and thankful for the way that the Spirit of God guided them into truth and brought us to the point where we can gather together on Sunday morning at Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina and sing God's praises and hear his word preached faithfully. So there's the example aspect here and there's also the thankfulness aspect here. And then, uh, last thing we really want to note is that American Presbyterianism can be uh, difficult to understand. I don't know if anybody's noticed or not, but there's more than one Presbyterian denomination in the United States, and uh, it can be uh, rather confusing. It's confusing for me, and I spend probably more time than I ought thinking about it. I had a great slide, but because of my... uh, My technical incompetence, it appears, that we're not going to be able to see that. Um, But if you could see, just imagine in your mind, a family tree of American Presbyterianism. It's got a lot of branches. (laughs) Some of them are obscure, tiny branches. Some of them are rather massive branches. Uh, But the point is, is that there has been a lot of division in American Presbyterian history. And that's just a fact of life. It's a fact of where we're at today. And it's helpful for us to understand, even as we think about ourselves as Orthodox Presbyterians, how did we end up here, yes, but also how did we end up the way we are? And that's an interesting question. If you've been around Orthodox Presbyterians for very long, you've probably asked that question to yourself. How did these people end up the way they are? We're a little odd. Maybe not the oddest, but a little odd. We have our own distinctives. We have our own ways of doing things. We have our own culture. And all of those things are a result of things we're going to be studying, aspects of our history which have shaped and formed us into the people, the denomination, and the traditions that exist today. Tim's going to try to fix me. We'll see if that happens. Plug it and unplug it. Tried and true method. Well, as we're continuing to work on that. So I hope this gives you something of a rationale for why we're doing what we're doing. There we go. Leave it at Tim. That had more of an effect than I was even thinking. You know? that, was, that was perfect. That was... I don't know if we can schedule uh, technical difficulties, but yes, here we go. So here is, a, here is an image, and to be fair, we're cheating a little bit because this has some Dutch reform stuff at the bottom and some other crazy stuff thrown in there. Uh, but regardless, it, it gives you a picture of the state of things currently. Uh, there's a few different types. So uh, anyway, so the point that I'm trying to make is that uh, to understand this, You have to understand something of the things that happened back here. And as we begin and move through this study, I hope that we get a better understanding of that. So, that's my apology for the class. I may have to give it multiple times. Hopefully I won't. We'll see. All right. So, uh, moving on from our brief apology. Apology. I do want to lay out a few other preliminary things. The first thing I want to note is that we are studying American Presbyterianism, which means that we are focused in particularly upon America. We're going to talk about Europe a bit today, but we're particularly focused in on American Presbyterianism, and we're particularly focused in upon this bold line that you can see here. And this is the line that encompasses, well, what we might call American Presbyterianism. Everything down here, for instance, our friends in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America or the United Presbyterian Church, which is no more but used to exist, all of that we could maybe, for the sake of ease, call Scottish Presbyterianism. These are various denominations that came to the United States and then continued to some expression or in some expression in the United States uh, from churches that had already split off from the Church of Scotland in Scotland. But our particular focus, and we are going to touch on some of those denominations because they're they're quite important for different aspects of this history, but but you should know our focus is going to be upon uh, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America and those denominations which came out from it. So now we talk about this as the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA. So our focus is going to be upon the events that took place in that tradition. And the reason for that is simple, uh, because... Where we're focusing in on, upon that because Orthodox Presbyterians come from that tradition. They come from that particular wing of American Presbyterianism in America. And, and also the PCA, which we're going to give some attention to. Obviously, that's our biggest sister denomination. They also come from that particular strand of Presbyterianism. So we're going to try not to neglect some of the smaller groups, and, and we're certainly not trying to demean the influence that they had but just so you know that's what we're particularly kind of zoomed in upon as we study this topic okay well now i have not very long to move through uh, the bulk of my material for today so i'm going to try not to talk too fast i'm going to try not to talk too many important or uh, skip over too many important things but uh, it's probably going to happen somewhere so i apologize for that in advance Uh, Today, uh, we are really giving our apology, laying out what we're going to do, and seeking to set the stage for American Presbyterianism. And to set the stage for Presbyterianism in the United States, uh, you really have to start with the Reformation in Europe, obviously. Uh, We're going to consider, just briefly, uh, the European Reformation, but not broadly consider we're not going to spend a lot of time on the German Reformation uh, or the Swiss Reformation, or, or anything like that. We're focusing particularly upon the, rec- the Reformation as it happened in the British Isles. So that's our, that's our goal for the rest of the class, to understand really where Presbyterianism came from. And it came, as you're going to hear in just a moment, from England and Scotland and Ireland later. So this is what we're going to consider. Uh, first things first, we should note that the Reformation did begin... In 1517, it did happen, and it happened in Germany uh, with Martin Luther. Uh, and we're going to skip from there. That's all Luther's going to get. I'm sorry for that. But uh, we're going to skip from that immediately to the 1530s. Because it's in the 1530s that we find uh, the English Reformation. So you know something about the English Reformation, no doubt. You've heard of Henry the Eighth and his marital... Exploits, etc. Uh, we're not going to get too into that. Uh, but eventually, because of Henry's desire for a male heir, uh, he ends up declaring England uh, out from under, or, uh, well, he severs the relationship of the English church and the papacy. Uh, so it, it starts in maybe a less, uh, I don't know how to put this, a less flattering way than the German Reformation does. There are no theological principles in Henry's mind. Maybe the argument could be made that there are some some places, but uh, for the most part, it starts in a less flattering way. But as the English church finds itself separated from Rome, in God's providence, that opened the door for reform-minded British theologians and clergymen. And they exploited that opportunity to God's grace. And what begins to happen during Henry's reign, very, very slowly, but particularly uh, in the reign of his son, is that where these reform-minded British clergymen begin to embark upon reform efforts in the Church of England. And so uh, one person who we should note in particular here is Thomas Cramer. Uh, He is... Extremely important for Anglicanism or the Church of England in that time, uh, but even today, if you know an Anglican or you know anybody who's a faithful Anglican, you know how important documents such as the 39 Articles or the Book of Common Prayer itself are to them, and those are largely the result of the work of Thomas Cramer. So Cramer is the Archbishop of Canterbury during the time of Henry and Edward, and he begins to uh, slowly but surely bring about reformed uh, efforts in the Church of England. One of the things he does, aside from the production of the various uh, articles and and things that we just talked about, the Book of Homilies uh, should be noted there as well, but he also brings in... Uh, reformers from the continent to teach in British universities. Uh, Of particular note here, we can think of uh, the Italian reformer Peter Martover Vermigli, who he brings in to teach at Oxford University, as well as Martin Bucer, who he brings in to teach at Cambridge. And so as you can see, while the English Reformation, as we're going to talk about a little more in a second, was not as radical of a reformation as the European reformations in those reformed areas such as Geneva and other places were, it was nonetheless very much influenced by reformed thinkers at a very early date. So these names, Vermigli and Busser and so on, uh, these are people who we would look to as as fathers of the reformed faith alongside Calvin and others, Bullinger, etc. And he brings these men in to teach in the English university system. And of course, this is going to have a great effect, begins to spread Protestantism uh, more aggressively uh, throughout the church by way of its, of its pastors and its ministers, etc. But that's where the, uh, the story goes a little awry. <laughs> so we've noted that the English Reformation at this stage especially was not as thorough as some other Reformations. And, and that's that's definitely the case, and you you can know that just by looking at the Church of England today, or even the Episcopal Church in the United States. I mean, what do we call it? We call it the Episcopal Church. Well, what do we call it? That anybody know? That's right, because they have bishops, <laughs> because they're they're ruled according to an Episcopalian style of church government. Uh, so so you note here that the English Church never reforms its. Its structure, it maintains the the structure that it's known for hundreds of years. The same structure that the Roman Catholic Church has, obviously, without the Pope at the top. But another aspect here is that they don't reform their worship nearly as thoroughly as it's going to be reformed in other places. So if you go to an Anglican church today, now that's not quite fair because of some developments that have happened in Anglicanism which have brought them even further back to medieval Catholicism. But even at this time, if you were to have gone to an Anglican church, you would see, for instance, people kneeling to take the Lord's Supper and other things like this that for typical Reformed people would cause a lot of suspicion to well up in our minds. We begin to wonder, well, what do you actually believe about these things? But even though the the English Reformation wasn't as thorough as some of the other Reformations, uh, it still was Protestant, And it still was reformed in a sense. And and what's going to happen after Edward dies, who, if you know English history very well, was a young man when he he died. He was a sickly child and a sickly young man. And he, he dies. And then his sister, who was also a daughter of Henry VIII, comes to the throne. Her name was Mary. Some of you might know another name for her. But, yeah, you guys know that. Yeah. You don't know about bishops, but you know about Mary. That's, that's good. That's, that's how Presbyterian churches should be, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, yes, uh, so her name is Bloody Mary. She's come down to us as Bloody Mary. Mary the First, Mary Tudor. And Mary was a Roman Catholic. And she comes in, and she sees what has happened up to this point under the, the work of people like Cramer and others to reform the English church, and she doesn't like it at all. She immediately begun, begins uh, to persecute Protestants and to seek to return England to being Roman Catholic. And, and this has two effects. The first is, is that, well, she does, to some degree, accomplish what she wants to do. She, she turns things back. She slows down the English Reformation, and she ends up murdering a lot of people. Thomas Cramer is burned at the stake uh, during this period. Uh, Latimer and Ridley, famous English martyrs, are are killed at this period. Uh, Hundreds of Protestants go to the stake under Bloody Mary. That's how she got the name. Uh, But this also has an unintended consequence. Uh, Something else that happens during this period is that many people, many Protestant-minded reformers in England, uh, decided that rather than go to the stake, uh, they would go to the continent. And so what she does is she unintentionally flushes many of these reform-minded clergy and thinkers over into continental Europe. And what do they do when they get to continental Europe? Well, they, they find places where they can worship and, and where they can live in churches uh, that are, in their mind, re- reformed according to the Scripture. Which means they go to places like Geneva, and they go to places like Frankfurt. And they go to many other cities that had become reformed at this time period. And what happens as they go and they worship in these churches and they spend time with these theologians is that they learn what it's like to be in a thoroughly reformed church. Because what they find in places like Geneva is not a halfway reformation, or if you want to put it more positively, a conservative reformation, like they had in England, but what they find is a thoroughgoing, Reformation. They find a church that is seeking to be thoroughly reformed according to the scriptures. And they like, by and large, what they see. That's an important thing for us to note here at this point. It's also important for us to particularly (laughs) turn our attention to one exile at this period, and his name was John Knox. John Knox, just to say a little bit about him before we speak about his exile. Was a minister at St. Andrews in Scotland, and he began there to teach the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Of course, the authorities did not like that. Uh, so, what happened to Knox at that point was he was sent as an indentured servant, really as a slave, uh, to work on a, on a on a ship in France. He became a galley slave. So. I believe that means you're at the bottom of the ship rowing when you need to be. And all of these really back-breaking things that galley slaves have to do, Knox was sold, basically, into slavery for a time. And he worked there for 19 months before he was released. And after being released from this period of slavery, Knox comes back to England. He comes back He comes to England. Uh, And he's actually involved in in some of the reforming efforts regarding the the Book of Common Prayer uh, with Cramer and others. Uh, But when Mary comes to the throne, he is forced to flee. He flees to Europe. And he goes first uh, to the city of Frankfurt. Now in Frankfurt, uh, Knox begins to be, I guess, stereotypically Knox. He gets quite dissatisfied with the state of the English exile church there because what he sees in the English exile church in Frankfurt is basically what you would have seen in England you see a church that was halfway reformed and Knox begins to work towards reforming that English exile church more thoroughly that brings him into conflict with a number of people and eventually forces him uh, to flee from Frankfurt uh, to Geneva and he stays in Geneva learning and observing the way the Genevan churches operate for a few years. And it's about this time, after Knox has made his way from Frankfurt to Geneva, uh, that Mary Tudor dies in 1558. Now, who knows who comes to the throne after Mary? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yes. There you go. The British know that, yes. <laughs> That's right. So Elizabeth I comes to the throne, and as much as I would like to talk about this, we don't have much time to talk about it, But what is one of the things that happens when Elizabeth is on the throne? Anybody know what major movement takes place in the Church of England? Separatism, Separatism or Elizabethan Puritanism is sometimes how we talk about it. And that happens because all of these exiles who have been on the continent learning what it looked like to live and to worship and to operate in this thoroughly reformed church that they had there in places like Geneva and other places come back to England and to Scotland in the case of Knox. And they begin to advocate for more thorough reform in the Church of England. And that's what produces uh, the spiritual giants that we, we talk about often today as the Puritans. Uh, The Puritans come from this movement. But uh, as much as I would like to talk for a really long time about Puritanism, I have, it appears, four minutes. So we should probably talk about Scotland and John Knox. It's around the same time, right after Mary dies in 1559, that Knox moves from Geneva uh, to Scotland. And basically, as soon as Knox hits the ground back in Scotland a revolution begins in Scotland, led by reform-minded or Protestant-minded nobles. And they uh, basically free themselves from under the yoke of Roman Catholicism at that point. And they they have a a parliamentary meeting and they abolish in 1560 uh, the authority of the Pope in Scotland. And they begin upon a series of reforming actions. Uh, At first, it takes the form of Really, a, a somewhat compromised document. The first uh, book of discipline in the Church of Scotland, that's from 1560. It's composed uh, by the Committee of Six Johns. I wish I could talk to you more about the Committee of Six Johns. Uh, someone mentioned to me this week that it's funny how all theologians seem to have the first name John. There's some proof for you. The bulletin is wrong. You can go until about five till. It's supposed to be oh. Okay. All right. There we go. Well, the bulletin is wrong. To talk about three of the Johns. <laughs> yeah. I should have written them down. I could do it. Well, I will tell you this that some of these Johns had literally been Roman Catholics like the week before. <laughs> so that tells something about the documents. It's not exactly, you know, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's Book of Church Order. Not that we necessarily want to hold that up as, you know, the peak of all church orders, but. Uh, it's definitely not a thoroughly reformed document the way maybe Knox would have written if he would have done it himself. It is a slow-moving uh, reform, even in Scotland at this point, although it is more thorough than what you see in England. And it sets the terms that First Book of Discipline does uh, for the reform of the church as well as, to an extent, the state. Oh, man, I, I, I forgot to change my slide to this wonderful picture of Mary I. I looked at this picture of Mary the First, and I thought to myself, "I wonder if John Knox himself drew that, because it's it's as flattering as as if he did. It's it's not a not a pretty picture there. Anyway, here's Knox. That's a little better, maybe. I don't know. I'll let you decide. Uh, but uh, but so Knox and others they, they begin upon this uh, this reform in Scotland. This will lead eventually, years later, to things like the second Book of Discipline in Scotland, which is a more thoroughly Presbyterian document. The first Book of Discipline had things, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Tim, the, in the first Book of Discipline they have things like, um, like superintendents, correct? Yeah, so a superintendent is the Scottish way of saying bishop without making Presbyterians mad. Um, but it's, it's a bishop, basically. Uh, And he has many of the powers of a bishop. And so the first book of Discipline, it's a compromised document. The second book of Discipline, on the other hand, is a much more thoroughly Reformed and Presbyterian document. And that is written, uh, for the most part, by a man named Andrew uh, Melville. So uh, they they eventually, and I'm sorry, that that happens in 1578. Uh, So it places uh, the supervision of the church fully in the hands of elected church leaders, elders. Uh, it, it establishes presbyteries in, in Scotland, and it establishes synods in Scotland, and it establishes a National General Assembly in Scotland. So there you go. There's your, your traditional levels of Presbyterian church government. If you're not familiar with synods, that's typically, so you have your, your General Assembly up here, you have your synod, and then you have your presbytery, and then your session, right? So that's that's the typical Way that Presbyterians organize a church. Some churches, like our own, does not have synods. Anybody know why we don't do that? Yeah, we're small. I think somebody said it because we're too small to have synods. Uh, The PCUSA, for instance, has synods. The PCA probably could have synods. Might help them uh, actually a little bit. Uh, No offense. Uh, The ARP, for instance, if you're familiar with the ARP, has no General Assembly but only a Senate. And the reason for that is, historically, they are the southern Senate of the Associate Reform (laughs) Presbyterian General Assembly. And they they just broke off and they never decided to have a General Assembly anymore. They just call themselves the Senate. Uh, So that's why you have those differences in names. And that's what those levels uh, are. So the second book of discipline establishes a much more thorough Presbyterianism in Scotland. And the standards of the Church of Scotland from this time forth, so from 1578 to to 1645, uh, was the Scots Confession of Faith. And we're not going to talk a lot about the Scots Confession, but that is, what's important for you to know, is that's the first Reformed Confession of the Reformed Churches in Scotland. And then their Book of Order is going to be this uh, second Book of Disciplines from the time, basically, it's adopted by uh, Parliament uh, up until... Uh, uh, 1545, or 1645, rather. I think I confused these. Let me say that again. The second book of discipline is going to (laughs) reign in the Church of Scotland from 1578 to 1645, and the Scots Confession is going to be in place from 1560, when Knox uh, composes it and puts it into place, uh, to 1547, or 1647. I'm getting 15s and 16s confused. I'm sorry for that. Anybody know why... It would be in the, fifth, or in the 1640s uh, that the confessions would change in Scotland. Because there was no king in England. There was no king in England? Okay, yeah. And as a result of that, Parliament was able to do some things. Yeah, do what they wanted, that's right. <laughs> that happens when you cut the king's head off, you can kind of do what you want to do. Um, so the long Parliament calls the Westminster Assembly, Right. And so it's it's in uh, fifteen or sixteen forty five uh, that the Scottish Church adopts the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, and then it's in it's in fifteen uh, I am sorry sixteen man I am bad at that today uh, sixteen forty seven that the Scottish Church adopts the Westminster Confession of Faith as their documents their standards. So that's why we have the end of the Scots Confession and the and the Second Book of Discipline at those points. Which brings us nicely, I think, into discussing just for a few moments uh, the Westminster Assembly. Uh, before we do that, though, I should not neglect, I started to skip it, but it's it's very important for our discussion today. Uh, we also have to discuss, very briefly, uh, the 1606-1607 uh, beginning colony in Ulster, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and that is extremely important for American Presbyterianism, uh, if for no other reason. Does, any, does anybody know who the father of American Presbyterianism is? Heard that name? His first name is Francis? Yeah, I, I don't remember his last name, but he was, uh, he was the man who brought Presbyterianism to Virginia. Yeah, uh, yeah, Virginia and, and the eastern shore of Maryland in particular, yes. That's right. Francis McAmee is his name. Does anybody know where Francis McIntyre was ordained? I've just been talking about Ulster. <laughs> Ireland. Ireland. That's right. So the father of American Presbyterianism, contrary to popular belief perhaps, is not a Scotsman. He's a Scotch-Irishman. Don't throw anything at me. But Presbyterian in Ireland is, uh, Presbyterianism in Ireland is very important to American Presbyterianism because Presbyterian, Presbyterianism in Ireland is in some ways our direct mother church. Uh, so that's, uh, that's significant. But anyway, uh, the Ulster Colony starts, and, and it starts, my understanding is, is an attempt to do two things. First, to pacify Roman Catholics in Northern Ireland, which is always helpful. You want to you pacify those aggressive Irish Catholics. Uh, But you also want to do something about these lowland Scots who were constantly agitating for for more thoroughgoing Presbyterianism in Scotland. So somebody had a wonderful idea. I think it might have been Francis Bacon, actually. But anyway, I won't won't go there. I'm not sure. uh, But somebody had the great idea. Why don't we just solve both of these problems at one time? We'll put these Scotsmen over here in Ireland, and we'll see what happens. And there we get the Ulster Colony. Now, we know from contemporary history that this, of course, brought about peace and prosperity for everyone in Ireland, right? This was a, this was a wonderful idea. It, just, it worked like gangbusters, right? No, of course not. It didn't go well. It still doesn't really go well. We still have the troubles and all these things in Northern Ireland. This is the root of all of that. But it's also the beginning of Presbyterianism in Ireland. The first Presbyterian there was established in 1642. And it's from that Presbyterian church that arose there that we see uh, the father of American Presbyterianism coming to America after being ordained in Ireland. So that being said, we also very quickly have to touch upon English Presbyterianism and, and the Westminster Assembly and Puritanism and, and all of these things which are super easy to summarize in a, in a few minutes. Um, but let's try to hit the high notes here. Uh, the first, let's say a word about English Presbyterianism. It doesn't go well. <laughs> uh, Presbyterianism in England was really was really a non-starter from almost the very beginning. Uh, and the reason for that was the Anglican Church was not, not willing, really, to, to participate in any more thorough reform than it had already undergone. And uh, there were, for instance, Puritans, many Puritans, who were Presbyterians. We could think of Thomas Manton. And we, we could think of others. Uh, but uh, they were never successful in convincing the Church of England to become Presbyterian, except for maybe for just a second uh, after the Westminster Assembly. But for the most part, uh, this did not really go very well. Um, there were very important figures for Presbyterian church history in England, people uh, like Thomas Cartwright and others. Uh, but the movement itself never was really able to gain any steam. Interestingly... Congregational polity and independency gained some steam for a time, especially with the rise of Oliver Cromwell, who was himself an independent. Uh, but Presbyterianism, it, it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't ever take off in England. Um, so there's my word about Presbyterianism in England. It's a rather depressing word for Presbyterians, but it just doesn't really go well. Uh, Not to say that there weren't great English Presbyterians, another one we could think of here would be uh, Richard Baxter. Uh, But, you know, if we think of some of our favorite Puritans, we could think of someone like John Owen, for instance. Uh, John Owen's a Congregationalist. Or uh, William Grinnell, which has written a wonderful book, of course. Uh, You know, the Christian in complete armor, that is he was a conformist so while he was a Puritan he was able in his conscience to conform to the church government of the Church of England there were there were many people like that who were puritan minded but not uh, not ready to break uh, with the state church and its structure in that way so let's think for just a moment though about the Westminster Assembly very quickly so we talked about the long Parliament and we talked about the fact that Parliament Takes over in a sense uh, England and, and something results from this uh, anybody know it was rather bloody yeah Civil War so the English Civil War is going on at the same time we're seeing these documents composed. Um, I, I was reading one author the other day that, that suggested that you know when we read the Westminster Confession maybe we should try a little harder to hear cannon fire in the background uh, because this is the context in which the documents are written. They're written by godly men, they're written by gifted men, but they're also written in a time of war uh, where there is an intense battle taking place between uh, those who were loyal to the crown and those who were loyal to the parliament. Uh, but it's, it's in this context that the, the long parliament, it calls the Westminster Assembly, and the Westminster Assembly uh, meets uh, from 1643 to 1653, to uh, and it produces, of course... Uh, The catechisms, the shorter and the larger catechism, as well as the Confession of Faith and the Directory for Public Worship. And these documents become really the center of Presbyterian theology from that time on. Uh, So in some ways you could say we've gotten our church government, uh, mostly from Scotland, uh, influenced obviously by the continent and reformers there. Uh, but we, we get our theology uh, from the Puritans. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a Puritan document. Does, does anybody know? Okay, well, here's a question for you. Was everybody who was involved in writing the Westminster Confession of Faith a Presbyterian? Yeah, no, not, not by a long shot. There was a variety of different parties who were present uh, when the Confession of Faith and Catechism were being, or Catechisms were being worked out. There were independents and Congregationalists. There were Episcopalians, Anglicans. Uh, There were what we call Erastians. Those are uh, people who believe the government should have more say, as it were, in the church. And then there were Presbyterians. Um, The the men who were particularly influential on shaping the directory and the Presbyterian form of government, though, uh, were not English, Uh, they were Scottish because the Scottish Church sent commissioners. Uh, these commissioners didn't have the full authority of a member of, uh, the, of, of the English clergy who was called to, to develop the, the confession, but they did assist. And uh, the, these members were some of really the brightest lights of Scottish Presbyterianism at that time, men like Samuel Rutherford George Gillespie and others uh, that we'll speak about in just a, a moment a little bit more. So... We've moved very, very quickly, I, I understand, and we've missed much, very much, that we, could, uh, that we could say and really should be said about the Reformation in Scotland and England, the development of Presbyterianism in Ireland. Um, but I do want to leave that for just a moment uh, to note another uh, foundational, uh, foundational group uh, with regards to American Presbyterianism, and that is the Continental Reforms. So we talked about uh, the fact that we got our government and we got our our theology really from Britain. Uh, But we got a lot of our people from other places. And and that is significant. So here we we have a map of uh, Huguenots and Huguenots fleeing from France. This happened en masse. Uh, The Huguenots are not the only people uh, who would come to the New World, but they are a very significant group as we begin to understand the, the, the foundation of American Presbyterianism, because they, they would flood uh, the American Presbyterian churches. You would see names, for instance, like Jean Lafayette Girardot in Presbyterian churches for centuries to come. Now, that doesn't sound like a very Scottish name, does it? <laughs> That's a very Huguenot name. That's a French name, particularly in places like South Carolina, Charleston, where uh, Gerardot comes from. Uh, But you would also see later names like Henry Van Dyke, or to come very close to home, Cornelius Van Til. There is a a heavy influence of Dutch Reformed people coming to the United States, first to New Amsterdam or New York, uh, and then to many other places, and influencing American Presbyterianism. You also have German Reformed people. When we talk about Presbyterianism in North Carolina, we'll talk briefly about the city of Newburgh. The city of New Bern is founded by Swiss and German Reform people. That's why it's called New Bern, after Bern, Switzerland. So you, you, uh, you have lots of various people groups who come from Reformed churches flooding into the colonies later and, and becoming part of the American Presbyterian tradition. The American Presbyterian tradition, in a, in a very real sense, like America itself, is a melting pot of various groups and churches and theological traditions from Europe. So I think that that is very important for us, even as we've noted uh, the theology and the polity, we see that the people also uh, are coming from Europe, and they're coming from a great variety of backgrounds. Okay, so I'm almost at time. Let me do one more thing, uh, and then I will... I will let you harass me with some questions while you should be picking up your kids from Sunday school. Uh, Myself is included there. Uh, I have a few books. Uh, Tim and I discussed uh, how we could make this a profitable time, not only just for trying to catch you up to speed on some major aspects of Presbyterian history, but also on how you might actually be able to kind of touch and read and and understand it a little better, even get in touch with it uh, in in a way that would affect you more personally and, and more deeply, I suspect. And so we decided that we would bring in a few books from every period that we're talking about to kind of uh, show you and, and make you realize that uh, these folks are not uh, inaccessible and that you can, actually, uh, you can actually pick these guys up who are so influential in our church and, and read them. And, and so today I brought in uh, one of the works of John Knox. This is a volume one, and it deals with uh, the Reformation in Scotland. You can get uh, his complete uh, series, but the first two volumes of that series are his works detailing the history of the Reformation in Scotland. You can read it, as it were, from the horse's mouth and see what Knox has to say about that that period of history that he was so important to. Uh, The other two here I have, so I have one historical book, and then I have uh, one theological book. This is a book called Aaron's Rod's Blossoming. And this book is written by one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, uh, George Gillespie. And it's his defense of Presbyterian church government. And Gillespie really was the powerhouse at the Westminster Assembly who kind of won the day for Presbyterianism and especially was instrumental in the defeat of the Erastian wing there. And then last, we'll end with something uh, that is is very rich indeed and is more focused on Christian piety, and that is the letters of Samuel Rutherford. We noted earlier uh, that he was one of the commissioners as well. And if you have not picked up the letters of Samuel Rutherford, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Uh, They belong beside Robert Murray McShane, I think, uh, his works um, as some of the greatest that a Scottish theologian has ever produced on the topic of Christian living and spiritual counsel. So with that being said, you can help me with questions. Except for Ervon, because I'm scared to try to answer his questions. (laughs) <laughs> I was picking on you. You can, you can ask a question if you want. Anybody? We moved very quickly. I skipped over a lot of stuff. Okay. What was the time period when you us? Yeah. Yes. So, so there was a number of things that were going on that caused. The plea. There was a war, wars of religion that were taking place there between Roman Catholics and and Protestants. Uh, the, the, probably the biggest thing is the Bartholomew Day Massacre, uh, where there's a massive amount of Huguenots murdered in the streets of cities like Paris. Uh, this would have been I'm trying to make sure. I, I uh, This would have been in the in, in the. In the late 16th century, early 17th century, I believe. I'd have to get the date specifically for you. I, I was looking at them just earlier this week, and I can't remember exactly when this takes place. But but it, it happens in waves. So, so it doesn't happen all at once. Um, but if you were to, I don't know if this map has... Hmm. It's not in English, so I'm not going to try to interpret it for you. Uh, But but there are waves of of French immigrants that are getting spread throughout, you see, not just to America, but all around. Uh, And they they come to the colonies, though, uh, for, for many, many years in a fairly consistent way.